Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 10 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. You're in love, but you don't always know when your partner is in the mood for romance. And sometimes you get shot down, so you stop uh, trying as often. Even if occasional rejection doesn't bother you, you may be worried of leaving your partner feeling guilty that their libido isn't always matching up to yours. Other times you'd be game, but you let the moment pass because you're not quite motivated enough to be the one who makes the first move. With love sync. There's no rejection, no guilt, and no missed opportunities. I saw, I saw this on Twitter. Take the luck out of getting lucky and make your move with confidence. Derek, have you are you aware what love sync is? Oh, uh, I, I saw that you oh man. First of all, I want to fire the copywriter who didn't say take the luck out of fuck. And second of all, I saw the thing from Austin Walker that you retweeted today. So love sync, for those not aware, is a pair of fuck buttons. It's but not like <laughs> not, not, not like the, the band. band. It's a pair of buttons that you and your lover are supposed to get, and when you want to fuck, you press it, and then if the other person presses their button, you both get to fuck, I guess. <laughs> so it's not buttons you fuck. No. They're, they're buttons to indicate that you want to yes, fuck. Yes, they're buttons to indicate your desire to fuck. So th- here's the steps. Just uh, It has a breakdown. Step one, place a button at each of your bedsides and plug it into a USB power outlet. Convenient. Okay, first. Okay, oh, 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 I, okay, I get through all the steps first. Okay. Step two. I'm going to take, take some notes. <laughs> when you're feeling like you could be up for getting down, you anonymously tap your button. Anonymously. You, who could have guessed who tapped this fuck button that's on my dresser? Yeah, you either did or you didn't. Your desire will be stored for a set time period. Your desire will be stored for a set time that period? That is some wonderful neoliberal language. No risk of rejection here and no pressure on your partner. If only one of you taps... Nothing happens. Step three. If only one of you taps, you get to jerk (laughs) off. Step three. But if your partner is also feeling a bit randy during this time period, they'll be anonymously tapping their button. Again, anonymously. The patent pending. What if it lights up and you're like, I don't know who to tap this button. I got to fuck somebody. I don't know who it is. Um, The patent pending love sync technology (laughs) recognizes that there is consensus. It lets you both know with a swirling glow. We'll leave the rest. Up to you. Go on, Derek. You had something to say earlier. First of all, what the fuck is your name? Mm. It's Isabel. <laughs> uh, oh, this is what three episodes in a row where you've just just launched into nonsense. This is this is an important. The love sync button. The love sync button is important. It says I, a lot like, about our society. My first note is: What if I don't have like? What if I don't have two sides to my bed? My bed's in a corner. You'll have to label your fuck buttons. Like, the one on the right side's mine. The one next to it is yours. Don't look at mine. I don't want it to be anonymous. What if you're, like, in a multi-person situation? Oh, okay. Here's the thing. You can, uh, if you pledge $190 or more, you get four sets of love buttons. So Four sets of two. Four, I See, that's what I'm, I'm confused about. Like, do, do all four of those have to be lit up before, like, everyone goes and hangs out? Or is just two of them get set up? Like, what happens? Uh, Isabel, I don't know if our, I don't know if our platform is the place where we want to start discussing about polyamory and neo-capitalism. Maybe we should just talk about movies. <laughs> I, if you, you know what, Derek, if that's what you want, there's a great chart here <laughs> on, on the right side, on the, on the, on the x-axis is your desire level. On the oh, y-axis is your partner's desire level. And there's a chart that says, hey, here's, here's where sex happens. <laughs> Here's where sex used to happen. And thanks to Love Sync, here's where sex can happen now. I thought millennials were supposed to be communicative. I don't think this is for millennials, Derek. Oh, uh, good point. Fair point. Um, but if you if you tap the button five times, it means you want to fuck for 24 hours. 
Okay, hold on. That's very important wording here. Does that mean that okay. I yeah. basically there's a there's a 24 hour period in which you would be up for having sex, not that you okay, would necessarily that want to have sex for 24 straight hours. Okay, that's very important to to uh, to to lay out because I don't think I can fuck that. Long. I'm just gonna say that like that. Oh shit! So <laughs> is is there more to this saga? No, I just realized that. Okay, so the uh, $190 I quoted you, that's eight buttons. Okay, I'm not fucking that many people at once. Also, okay, what a some weird people Christmas probably gift. Aren't. Okay, maybe. Like if you're really ambitious. <laughs> that's a lot. But also, that's a lot of work. That's I can't even Okay, I know I said we weren't going to be talking about this. That's got to be a hell of not just emotional work. That's got to be just a feat of organizational uh, uh, fortitude. Just just figuring out how to do that. I think that's more of like a drop-in, drop-out orgy situation than anything else. Like, hey, this is the room we're gonna be having fun in. If you want it, you can stop on by. It's like a jam session. <laughs> you can pick up an instrument and just go to town. And then when you want to leave, just leave. <laughs> um, but we're not here today to talk about love sync. Uh, oh my god. We're here today to talk about love and film. <laughs> not really. None of these films are really about love. Or about the dissolution uh, of love, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, um... Oh, it's pretty far gone by the time it happens in separation. What is... What movies... What are movies? What's this podcast? This podcast is, uh, apparently branded content for the Love Sync Corporation, as far as I know. So this is Middle Brow Madness. This is a podcast where we take the top 250 films on the IMDb Top 250 Films list, and, uh, this is circa August 2017, uh, 2018, and we put them in a nice, fancy single elimination bracket and uh we basically try to find a champion and we've made it through uh we've made it through 18 pairings and there are 128 pairings in the first round and that means that i'm going to be writing this podcast into my will so that someone will finish it for me but today we've got two matchups as we do with every episode we have a separation versus the elephant man and we have seven samurai versus gangs of wasipur huh i'm still kind of baffled about the love thing yeah. The thing with starting the show with these bits is that I get exasperated, and then I gotta talk about these movies. My goal is to throw you off your game. I think I'm doing pretty well. Oh my god. I mean, I mean, not only are we you throwing me fan fiction, my... we got juggalos, we got fuck buttons. This, <laughs> this is a great podcast, Eric. I mean, on the one hand, this completely destroys any possible streamlining we may make of the podcast, but I also kind of want to see how far you can take this. Or how long you can keep this. Don't worry, I have bookmarks. I'm ready. You have bookmarks. I, I plan my goofs out in advance. God. Alright, well let's let's talk about the goofiest thing of all. Divorce! Hey! Uh, so our first matchup. Divorce well, Iranian style. Exactly, divorce Iranian style. Let's uh, tailor the tape for our first matchup. The 110 seed. A Separation from 2011, directed by Asghar Farhadi, starring Leila Hatami, Rayman Moadi, and Shahab Saini. And uh, a pretty decent hit, uh, cost $800,000 to make, and made $24 million, and uh, was the winner of the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 2012. Uh, going up against the 147 seed, The Elephant Man, directed by one David Lynch, maybe you've heard of him, released in 1980, starring John Hurt, Anthony Hopkins, and Anne Bancroft. Or wait a minute, is it Anne Bancroft? Uh, I don't have the stuff up, so I don't know. Hold on, I fucked up because my handwriting is bad. Hold on, I'm I'm pulling it up. Anne Bancroft, yes, you're correct. Yep, uh, 26 million dollar gross on five million dollar budget, and went zero for eight at the Academy Awards that year because it was up against a little movie we had covered previously called Raging Bull. It was a year of mediocre films. I mean, you say that. Uh, okay. That's that's not true at all. There's a ton of movies from 1980 that are fucking incredible. But let's talk about. Or we talk. Which one are we talking about first? The separation. Let's talk about a separation first. Okay. Um, so I, I this is the this is one of the films I was looking forward to most for this podcast because I've heard nothing but praise for it since it came out. Um, uh, yeah, very well received. And as with a lot of movies that are very well received and hyped, I did not watch it. When same. I, not because I have any like ill will or anything towards it. It's just I didn't get around to it. It's like nine times out of ten when there's an acclaimed film or a film that I probably would like that comes out and I don't see it until a couple of years later just because it just kind of fell down the priority list, you know? Yeah. And in my opinion, I was disappointed. You were. I was. 
I still think it's a good film, but with what it was built up and what I actually got, and the problem with it is that the things that I liked at the time are fading more and more into the background, and the things that I disliked are coming more and more to the forefront, to the point that if you asked me to rate it now, as opposed to when I just watched it, I would definitely drop it a, a half star or a whole star, maybe. Okay, because I think... Well, we should probably just lay out the plot real quick. Sure. Uh, a separation is about a separation. It's uh, a husband and wife uh, who want to get... Well, the wife wants to get separated so she can move abroad because... I don't know if you heard, but uh, Iran may be uh, kind of a tough place to live sometimes. It's just a little rough over there sometimes. So, and uh, the husband's like, no dice. And uh, but they, and they still... Uh, he still lives with his father who has Alzheimer's. And uh, it's a whole to-do. They have a daughter uh, who kind of goes back and forth between parents. Uh, the father hires a maid, a lower-class maid who's very religious. Her husband's an asshole. And it's a movie rife with with very sad incident. Just shit. Bad shit just keeps happening in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think we should lay out the main conflict, which is that um, he, the, the husband, hires um, the... Uh, basically, essentially, someone to watch his husband while he's not there, since his wife isn't there anymore to watch him, and yes. yeah, she's to watch his father. Yes, because the wife is not there, and the uh, person who comes to do this this job is pregnant, which he may or may not know. Although it's very clearly laid know. out later, which which one of those options it is, he may sure. or may not know that she's pregnant. And after he she leaves the apartment for a day to get some stuff done some to do some things that we also learn later what was being done um she basically ties up his uh father in the other room so he doesn't hurt himself and then yeah, with like a, ties him ties him by the by the arm to an armrest with like a handkerchief yeah and she just leaves and then when she comes back he's obviously very upset and he pushes her out of the apartment and then she claims that he shoved her down the stairs and because of that she miscarried so he's but it's basically a court case about whether it was actually his responsibility that she miscarried or not. Uh, yeah. And I think in that plot, I think I, a couple of things I said where it becomes clear later which of these things it is. That is indicative of the problems I have with the structure of the film and the way the story structure works. Too many things are given to the audience that make what should be a complex ethical dilemma because at, at first he... Or the other couple don't actually know whether he was responsible. And there's a real ambiguity there. And it's a question of, well, how should he have treated her? What was his responsibility in this, in this situation? What is he responsible for now that sh this has happened? But then the more and more we learn about the situation and the more and more things come to, to light, the easier that question becomes. To the point where by the end it's almost, it's, I don't want to say trivial, but... At the end, it's a very it's a foregone conclusion. It's a foregone conclusion, and you know very clearly, okay, this is exactly what happened, and this is exactly what caused X, Y, and Z, or so, or it's implied so strongly that you basically basically know what caused X, Y, and Z, and there's no ambiguity anymore. And it basically takes responsibility off of some people, puts it on some other people, and does away with what could be a very complex and interesting plot. And central question, in my opinion. I think I agree that I don't think the movie does itself any favors by laying out clearly who did what, when, and how. Because it's a stronger movie when... I think it's a stronger movie not just when all this is ambiguous. I think it's a stronger movie when people are being headstrong. Yes, and when both of them have reasons to believe their side is correct. Whereas towards the end, it almost becomes one side is pretty sure they're not correct. And mm -hmm. they're pushing against that because of uh, other factors. And then one side is pretty much sure they're correct. And that's really it. And I agree that it kind of... It, it does rob the movie of a little bit of, I guess, uh, narrative robustness or thematic robustness. But it does not take away from the fact that the, uh, it's technically very good in the sense that uh, Farhadi is a, 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 skill, a skilled director. I think I made the observation that there was almost, uh, in the chat, I think I made an observation that it was there was almost an Ozu-esque use of the space, that a lot of this movie is shot through, like, windows and names. Mm -hmm. Like, like plot, part of the plot hinges upon a literal doorframe and how people coexist within it. Um, I think that the performances across the board were pretty good. 
But I will echo the fact that it does lose narrative, not just because the, the, the morals and the truth gets laid out in a, in a very clear way, um, but also that the longer the movie goes on, the more you notice that the film's structure is very real. Yes. That the way that the film resolves conflict from scene to scene, or even introduces conflict from scene to scene, is not varied or interesting, even though it's delivered with... Yeah. I would definitely agree. And it's it's very much feels like the same people having the same conversations over and over. Over and over again. Yeah. And those people are doing a very good job. I think almost across the board, the acting is very strong. I think that the editing and the directing are also very strong. But the, the problem I have is with the script, which is a little ironic since it was actually that was what was not it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Whereas I think that although the individual like, on a line to line level, it's well written. Mm -hmm. On a structural level, there's a lot of chaff here that you need to cut. Or at the very least, you need to add something else in the interest or something else that's changing or other aspects of this this conflict. Because it's it's very clearly set up early on that it's a class conflict. Mm -hmm. It's very clearly set up early on that it's a it's a man versus a woman. It's also a religious conflict as well. And then it just circles those things for the rest of the film. It's It's weird because I do like this movie and I like it the way it was put together. But I don't, and and although I don't think that the uh, the uh, the screenplay screenplay problem bugged me as much, they are still there. And I think, but sorry, no, go ahead. The film it reminded me the most of when I was watching it is uh, Cachet, the Haneke film. I was gonna say it. It feels like a, it feels kind of like a like Haneke lit. Yeah, and I think the if it's unfair to compare a film to Cachet because Cachet is, in my opinion. One of the best films ever made. I think it's genuinely brilliant. But what that film does really well is, A, it keeps that ambiguity that I really like. I think that that ambiguity really works well. But also, it creates a different kind of tension, and it's changing up that kind of tension throughout, even though the conflict more or less remains the same. It's also very similar thematically. It's about class, especially. It's about, um, not as much about religion, but it is about this conflict between people who have money, people who don't have money, people who need money. And what what we are willing to admit that we've done wrong in the past and what that ability to admit or not admit those things does to us in the present. But what Cachet does so brilliantly is it it actually asks the audience those questions, whereas I feel the separation doesn't actually ask them. It gives you the questions and it gives you the answers and it doesn't allow the audience to really think on them. It's not as engaging as a short version. Yeah, I'm kind of coming around on like moment to moment. It's good, but like there's like there's some there's some script problem. It did it did make me more interested in seeing more of Farhadi's films. Um, uh, he's supposed yeah. to be a great director. This is the first one I've seen of his, but uh, I want to see more now. I mean, he's a great director. That much I could tell. Yes, definitely. Maybe maybe his maybe his writing ain't up to snuff at least here because he is a director first and foremost. But maybe I'll watch The Salesman and I'll disagree. And I think I'll, maybe that one's the thing. Who knows? Actually, I take that back. He's actually written more than he's directed. Um, but uh, yeah, apparently these movies... Uh, yeah, About Ellie apparently is great. The Past apparently is great. The Salesman apparently is great. There's 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 stuff to mine here. Now let's talk about David Lynch. Yeah. And his most boring movie. But also a good movie. I think this is where we're going to disagree a little bit. <laughs> um... I have seen five of David Lynch's. He's made ten of like full lengths. I've seen all of them except for the Straight Story. Yeah, Straight Story is the one of them that I'm missing, and I'm missing like some of the Golden Era stuff because the five that I've seen are Eraserhead, uh, Elephant Man, Dune, Blue Velvet, and Mulholland Drive. I love that Dune is one of them. <laughs> Here's the thing: Dune kind of rules. Dune does kind <laughs> of rule. It's and do at me because I want to hear it. Um. The Elephant Man doesn't rule, though. I, I don't know. I, I kind of liked it as like... Maybe I, should just, it's, I should lay out my problems with it real quick. So okay. for those who don't know, it's a film about Joseph Merrick. Or, um, Joseph Merrick. Um, he's called in the script John Merrick, but it's very clearly Joseph Merrick. Yep. And it's just about him meeting people, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's like, it's him kind of existing. Yeah. And not much happens. And there's no... what you. The thing a lot of people go to Lynch for and that I go to Lynch for is these flights of interpretation that work even if they're non-literal or even if they don't make sense. And his surrealism isn't just for the sake of being odd and isn't just for the sake of being surreal. Like the straight story I, f I hear is a very Lynchian movie even though it's not surreal. Or like um, 
Jeez, uh, Blue Velvet isn't a very surreal film. Like, like everything that happens in the film, it's very easy to track, like, in terms of a plot. It's a little odd, but there's a clear A to B to C. It's not like Mulholland Drive. It's not like Inland Empire, God forbid, which is his best film, just by the way. Um, <laughs> but whereas those films have these these elements that all kind of combine together and seem uniquely his and allow you, and they're, they're odd. There's odd aspects to all of them. Nothing feels all that odd in The Elephant Man. Everything that it, all the images it grabs onto feel so staid and feels so kind of very by the numbers. Like um, Merrick is building a replica of a church he can see from his window in during the time he's alive. Oh, cool. Great. Um, he meets a bunch of high society people and turns out that maybe they're the real monsters and he's the real like good person. Oh, cool. Great. Not that these are necessarily a bad message. But sure. it's like, oh, he also he memorizes the twenty third Psalm. G- cool. The only like really Lynchian thing that's in this film is it's right at the top. Is right at the top where there's this really quick cutting weird montage where it's explained later a little bit, but even that explanation isn't really an explanation. Um, where Merrick's mother, while she's carrying him, gets like attacked by an elephant, and I guess that's why. <laughs> um, John yeah, Merrick was, ends up being born with elephantitis. Um, I actually did a little teeny tiny bet. Um, Although little, I do want to say it definitely looks like she's getting fucked by the elephant in the, the way the montage is cut. But the way it's cut, yeah, it's kind. Um, there was this thing in the 19th century uh, that people believed called bad medicine. It's very popular in the 19th. Bad medicine is what I need. <laughs> God um, fucking damn it! <laughs> I am, listen. I get one. <laughs> You got your one. What is this thing that I got, he? I, I got my I got my one Bon Jovi reference. Um, maternal impression was a thing that people believed in the 19th century. Whereas um, uh, Wikipedia says, uh, resting on the belief that a powerful mental or sometimes physical influence working on the mother's mind may produce an impression, either general or definite, on the child she is carrying. And since she was spooked by an elephant, stands the reason that her kid would come out looking like an elephant. Although he, like, doesn't, though. Like, I never really, even when I was a kid, I didn't really understand why Elephant Man was kind of, like, the the thing he was... elephants are, like, big and, like, like kind of weird, like, like weird bulbous shit. I don't know. Yeah, but he just has, like, a growth on the side of his head and, like, a weird spine. He's got a weird spine and he's got... Because we don't see him, like, naked. We don't. Like, like he's apparently... Like, he's got I, a like, normal I, dick, apparently. He's got a normal dick. This movie takes great pains to say that Joseph Merrick has a normal... Like, little Joseph Merrick is fine. But... <laughs> Uh, on the Wikipedia page for Joseph Merrick, you see like you know like pictures of Joseph Merrick without any clothes on, and he's got like big ass flaps of skin. Apparently, that smell real bad. He's got like like pusses and postules and whatnot. Um, uh, you know, I kind of liked this movie. I thought, I mean, maybe this is because I haven't seen like a lot of the weirder Lynch stuff, but as like as like sort of like an entry point into like, hey, this filmmaker's kind of kooky. I think really kooky. It's a little kooky, I guess, because it starts off like the first images is that like the like the like it's weird because as the credits were going, um, where they have like the screenplay credit, it reads like it almost reads like a uh, like a medicine like 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 a like a like a medicine textbook page. Like this, like this is adapted from this and this pamphlet and this and this thing from. And I thought that kind of set like a tone for it, and then it goes into like the weird elephant choppy smeary montage and this is a david lynch film so it looks phenomenal the sound design is excellent uh it's it kind of effort uh, effortless effortless god damn it go for it one more time you got it effortlessly creates this universe and this vibe and this mood um of it's not darkness and it's not it's not kind of a it's not like the gnarled americana that uh that he would evolve into because he gets into that a little later, but it is kind of keeping with the not like not is not all is what it seems in in high society or not not all is what it seems on facade, and it might be facile, especially like after all of the movies that would come after the album. But this was his second go around. But his first go around was Eraserhead. <laughs> so his like- first go around was in fact Eraserhead, which was. Not just an all-time debut, but an all-time kind of artistic statement, like a statement, like a statement of intent. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, like the main problem I'm having with it is that it doesn't feel like, besides the sound design, which I agree, the sound design is excellent, 
And besides those couple touches here and there, nothing in this film feels like it could have been done by someone else. To me, a lot of this film feels very generic. It feels like black and white period piece. You got it. Here's all Here's all the pieces. Here's the theme of it. We're going to say the theme like 20 times in the movie so that so the audience fucking gets it. And then we're going to end it. It still feels just a little off kilter. Okay, I guess that, that's where I disagree. Is to me, it feels way too, like, by the numbers. Like, I almost, like, perversely think that the fact that it's so by the numbers is kind of weird knowing where it comes from. That's a very metatextual st- reading of it, though. I, I still think that there's, like... I will say, one thing I got I have unequivocal praise for is the makeup is genuinely, like, uh, John Hurt good. in the role and then the makeup on John Hurt is astounding. He is literally unrecognizable. And I cannot understand a thing he says, so right on. Um, I th- Yeah, I think this whole movie is just stilted enough. I think it's just, just weird enough. Like, it's just a little too proper. It's just a little too buttoned up. Would you include, like, like, those really weird edits it has as part of that aesthetic? Because there's a, there's a couple edits in this film where they feel like, oh, this scene was supposed to go more, and it just ends. You told me this, because you watched the movie first. I did, and this is uh, my second time seeing it. And I hadn't seen it before. And I could see where you were coming from, but it did kind of add to this disjointed feel. It rhymed with the intro of the film, to me. Okay. Like, this movie, like, regardless of what our, regardless of what we think, it's like, this movie was nominated for Best Editing at the Academy Awards. A lot of movies have been bad. A lot, I know, I know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But I do I am just saying we have 15 seconds left, so do whatever you got. I think it's better than, than you give it credit for. Uh, it may be remedial in, in the in like the in the filmography, but I still think it's a good movie. Okay. So the question becomes: If this is if this is your worst movie, you're in good shape. That's true. That is fair. If this this is David, in my opinion, David Lynch's worst film, and it's still, I was being very down. I, I think it's still like perfectly fine, perfectly fine movie. I thought I came into this thinking I was going to go one way, but I think I landed on on the opposite. So are you landing on Elephant Man as your one moving forward? I think I'm going to go with the other. So I would land on a separation just like on a pure which one I think is a better film standpoint. But also like I don't really care about either one <laughs> at all. I think they're both okay. like the most medium movies. And I'm I'll put it this way. I'm interested to watch The Elephant Man again and maybe see if I can see what you saw in it. Okay. So there we go. All right, so Elephant Man moves on. Congratulations. David Lynch keeps is are there there's no other Lynch film list, right? Can't uh... be. There, if if there if there isn't, it's got to be Blue Velvet. If there's anything else, there's I would so hold on. No, only Perfect Blue, which was one of my wild cards, is in there. Not, I think this is the only one. Okay, I mean, I think he's a very divisive director, so a lot of people like just wouldn't generally put his movies on there, anyways. Yeah, but we have two more movies to talk about. Yes, both of them very so, long. Uh, yeah, they are both very long, and I made the mistake of uh watching these back to back two days uh, two days in a row. I spent eight and a half hours of my life watching these movies. So the, our final matchup for today, uh, Tale of the Tape real quick. The 19 seed, Seven Samurai from 1954, directed by Akira Kurosawa, starring Takashi Shimura, Toshiro Mifune, and Keiko Tsushima. Uh, a modest, a modest, uh, uh, a modest, modest hit. Uh, 2.3, the equivalent of about 2.3 million uh, fuck, I forget if it was do- adjusted dollars. Okay, it was, I, I, I put dollars. Uh, $2.3 million box office on a $1.1 million budget. A modest hit, apparently it was number three for the year in Japan, but has grown in stature as one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, facing off against uh, the 238th seed, Gangs of Wasipur from 2012, which is technically two movies. but oh, uh, No, for- it's technically one movie, but it was split into two movies for Indian audiences. Because That's no true. Indian like theater would play a five-hour long. That's true. It was originally a five-hour opus. That's how it uh, played can, And it was split in two for domestic release. Uh, I do want to say 2000... real quick before we get any farther into things. Um, the way you said Samurai, you reminded me of Yolandi. Go on. <laughs> Uh, you might be surprised to know that uh, you might be surprised to find out that that is the first time someone has ever compared me to Yolandi Visser. I can't imagine that. So, Gangs of Vasipur, 2012, uh, directed by Anurag Kashyap, starring Manoj ba- Manoj Bajpai, Jaideep Alwat. My handwriting is so fucking bad. <laughs> oh man, 
Let's go to the Wikipedia where shit is written, not in longhand. Are you ready to read all fucking 500 people? Yeah. Uh, starring Manoj Bajpai, Jaideep Alawad, and Nawazuddin Siddiqui, among others, because this cast, this, let's just say that this movie has a deep bench. Uh, and uh, was a modest hit, uh, $8.5 million on a $3 million budget, and is considered a, uh, a cult film in, in India. So let's talk about one of the greatest fucking movies of all time. We're going to talk about Inland Empire? What are we doing? <laughs> We're talking <laughs> yes. about The Seven Samurai. We are talking about Seven Samurai. Um, directed by Akira Kurosawa. This is yeah. technically my second time watching it, but the first time was in like high school, so I didn't sure. remember much of it. Damn, this movie is fucking great. This movie is so fucking good. This is like the fourth time I've seen it, and it doesn't lose an ounce of its power, or it's it's the like the fastest three and a half hours ever recorded. I like that both of us sent each other messages on different days, just being like, oh, Toshiro Mufune, holy shit. Toshiro Mufune is, I mean, he's a legend, and I mean, I mean, you could you could take out all of his work that's not with Akira Kurosawa, and he's still in the hall. He still also has 16 films. Akira Kurosawa yeah. likes to put him in movies. Yeah, and, uh, well, this is basically uh, Akira Kurosawa doing a movie with his, like, stable, because yes. uh, Takeshi Shimura is in a bunch of his um should we describe the plot if people aren't aware uh, it's okay it's this is basically a western i mean they made the magnificent seven after this because it's basically the same movie uh a group of bandits uh keeps stealing shit from a village and they threaten to come back once the barley uh once the barley grows it's also a bug's life by the way it's also a bug's life so uh so the bandits leave and they're threatened to come back and the villagers are like well shit um uh well we don't well, we don't have anything to eat, and we want to keep this what little we have. So maybe we should hire some samurai, and they get seven samurai. Oh, a motley title. crew, a motley crew of uh, of samurai to help defend the village, and they do in one of the greatest extended action set pieces of all time. This is completely unrelated, but did you do you know how much money um, pachinko machines based on the Seven Samurai have made? They have licensed pachinko machines. Oh, you for, didn't know for, this? Like, I knew that pachinko was David a thing, but I didn't know everything. Is actually like, um, is it like pinball? Basically, like they have licenses for fucking everything. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Capcom, the video game company, is like, or oh, Konami actually. Konami is actually really famous for licensing their stuff out to pachinko machines because they also make pachinko machines. Um, and there was recently, I don't remember, there was some announcement like, hey, there's a new Silent Hill thing coming. And everyone got excited until it was, it was a pachinko machine based wow. on Silent Hill that came out. So tell me, how much money do the how much money does the Seven Samurai pachinko machines make? Four hundred and seventy million dollars, like per year. Um, it just says or just all time. All time. There's been ninety four thousand units sold in Japan as of March twenty eighteen. That's a lot of fucking dollars. It is. Pachinko is very popular. It's big business. It is. Um, but back to the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, that. Final set piece is astounding. Um, all the acting is incredible. I almost, I don't even know what to say because it's, it's been talked to death. Everyone has seen The Seven Samurai. Everyone can talk about it. But I think that one of the things- the same problem we had with uh, Tokyo Story. True. Is that this movie's been talked to death. But I, one thing that I like so much about it and that I think makes the movie is the ending. The ending where the villagers go back to doing what they're doing and the samurai, the, th- the three who are still alive- Right. Leave, spoilers. Um, yeah, spoilers. Uh, they leave basically without. I mean, they knew they were they weren't going to get a reward. They don't get a thanks. They don't get a hey, uh, good job. They just leave. And <laughs> they with, just wanted with, an attaboy. <laughs> yeah. They leave, and the implication is that they need to leave because they're no longer needed here. And essentially, they're the violence that they represent isn't welcome in this community now. That doesn't need their protection. Sure. And it's it. No one ever says that. But just the way that it's shot, the fact that you, one of our, uh, the youngest uh, samurai character has a love affair with a villager and she like walks away from him. Even though she like sees him, she walks away from him and goes back to her village. And simple visual language like that does all the narrative heavy lifting on the thematic heavy lifting of these guys were here to do a job and cool. I'm glad you helped out, but now you got to leave because we don't need you here anymore. And you're actually kind of the reason that this violence is happening. Yeah, uh, Toshiro Mufuna gets his whole, he has that whole drunken speech. Yeah. Like, the, the the yelling speech where he's like, where we find out that he was like a dispossessed farmer. 
or he comes from a family of dispossessed farmers. Yeah. And he's got that whole that that whole power solo. Um man, Mufune's really fucking good in this. He really is. And Oh man. He, you know, here's my he, here's my hot take. Yeah. Akira Kurosawa, good director. Knows, I, I would knows, agree. Knows how to use a camera, knows how to block uh good action director. Good action director. Which you usually wouldn't think of as like a prestige movie, which is what Seven Samurai now is thought of as in some circles. I mean, it's got a Criterion Collection edition, crying out loud. Yeah, this is like the, the, the like, the like, weirdly, like the post-World War II era, like the, the early to mid-50s is like when American audiences were like, hey, the cinema of Japan, maybe we should look into that. Because Tokyo Story is like, Tokyo Story is the year before, and Seven Samurai is 54, and Rashomon is like 1950, I think. So there's this, there's this moment that, that Japanese film is having abroad. I don't know what that says about anything else. I just thought it was interesting. Collective guilt? Oh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think it's like, I mean, I'm sure that like anything else probably contributed partly, but I think it's also the fact that these are, it, it, obviously like during the war period, the interwar period, there wasn't a lot of film production going on in Japan. Sure. Um, Even like a like pre-war, there wasn't a lot of um production going on. Like obviously there's things like uh, Pages of Madness, which one of the best sound films ever made, but like who gives a shit? Like no one really like paid attention to that. And it was after the war and after kind of some rebuilding it started happening that an actual film industry developed in Japan. Yeah, it starts really ramping up in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, very much so. Like it more uh it stopped being just like cuz plenty of places had their own like film things. Like there was um like many countries in South America had like a film scene, but it wasn't really like a a whole industry. Sure. Um, whereas this is a time period where it actually becomes an industry. It's where we have like our actual studios for Japan, like well-known studios um, mm-hmm. making Japanese movies. Um, that's that's my theory. I don't know if that's right at all. I'm just going off of the little bit I know about film history, but that sounds just right to my head. Um, here, The thing about Seven Samurai is that is at times so elemental and so fresh. It's a well-worn story, but told with such energy. And such precise craft and with these great performances that there's something new. And it's like three and a half hours long. So there's something new to discover every fucking time. Because it deals in archetypes, but it also feels like it invents those archetypes as it does them. Yes. Even though that even though we know that Westerns were a thing and that was something that the Japanese were hip to. Yeah. But like this, like uh, the archetype of like the the leader of the group, or like the the wise swordsman who doesn't really talk to anybody, but he's amazing at the thing he does. Or, or the wild card. Yeah, the wild card, and then or you have like the fun loving guy who, of course, has a tragic death. Sure. All that kind of stuff uh. was it was simmering around in cinema, but it kind of took this real level of craft to make those things feel brand new. And like every time you watch it, it doesn't feel like. They're getting the bang, the gang back together. It feels like these are new things being invented. Like you're watching the formation of an archetype instead of the employment of an archetype. Yeah, all of this existed before, but it never existed quite like. Yes, very much so. That being said, let's talk about gangs of Wasipur. Uh, do we have to? Yes, this was a five-hour and change two-part crime epic with a cast so large that you need a Pepe Silva style dart like corkboard in order to keep track of everyone's relation. This is basically kind of like what if we tried to do The Godfather plus Romeo and Juliet but also plus Once I, Upon, I, upon, I, upon a Time in America. Yeah, yeah, they the Once Upon like like let, let's just Let's do a 70s crime epic a la The Godfather, plus a tragic love story a la Romeo, plus every Sergio Leone film. And what we got is this thing. Terrible. This, we got this inco- a terrible movie. We got, we got two things. We got a boring, incoherent first half. Genuinely fucking incoherent. Like, I want to emphasize that. Like, I was following along Wikipedia and he, like as I was watching it, and even then, I don't know what the fuck happened. And a second half... That is scummier and more fun because at this point, I feel like it actually lets its hair down and kind of delivers on some of the promises that it makes in the first half. Well, because instead of going through like fucking like five decades or like more, because it it starts from pre, it starts from like colonial India going up until 2001, I think is where it ends for part one. You know how they say when you write a screen, you know how they say when you write a screenplay, cut the first act? Yeah, 
Like if you, like, if you chopped the first, the, if you didn't watch part one and you just watched part two and you added a couple like intro bits, like, Hey, here's this per here's who this person is better movie. So yeah, if, much better. If you take like half an hour from the first movie and like spot welded to part two, you have a pretty decent like crime epic. But oh my but oh my god, Derek, watching this I, movie was fucking torture. I can't. There's no way this justifies a five hour. God, make I, I a was, fucking miniseries instead. I was complaining to you like uh, like they're still introducing new characters. Like there's like twenty minutes left in the film, and there's still major new characters being introduced. Yep. And, oh my god, and I, like I said, I was following along with Wikipedia for, like, half of part one, and I kind of knew it was happening, and then at a certain point, I just, I gave up completely. I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know who these people are, they, they're aging up, but, like, I can't remember, like, what their name is, so, like, I don't know what they look like anymore, so I can't keep track of who's who, and then one of them is, like, marrying their, like, this other crime boss's daughter but then his other daughter is marrying someone else who i think is in the same family and there's five kids in this one family from like three different mothers and there's so many moments in the film where i felt like wow if i understood what the fuck was happening i think there's something cool like there's a plot twist here but i don't know i i just have to assume that there's something here that is supposed to be a plot twist because i I can't comprehend what's happening i i got so like out of this movie that like to get through part two because I was I was having I was like pausing it like every ten minutes like oh my god I can't do anymore I the second half of part two I was practicing slide guitar <laughs> while I was watching it that's the only thing that would like keep me awake enough to like at least look at the screen I, let I me didn't try care to sum this up <laughs> let me let me try to sum this up it's a crime saga that starts in the 1940s and it relates to three different family the cons one of whom isn't introduced to the end of part one the cons the sings and the Qureshis. i think that's the way you go they it starts off as uh okay so there's these coal mines right are you really gonna so, do this you have five <laughs> you have five minutes are you you're just not gonna have enough time to do this derek it starts off with the coal mines uh near around the time that uh india becomes independent and basically through generational uh, generational rat fucking and a p- a palm greasing and um, basically it is understood to be wanting to emulate these crime movies because there's a through line in this where everyone goes to the movie and one of the characters towards the end of the movie in part two has, I think, the best line in the movie where he goes, everyone else out there has a fucking is the fucking star of their own movie. That's why they're getting shot. They're being careless. They're being fucking stupid. But that's like two minutes in a five hour and change saga. The second half has working for it the fact that all bets are off. The last hour, as I hoped against hope, is basically a giant shootout where everybody dies. And from from the point of view of just cinematic schadenfreude, that's great. But it in no way justifies any of the choices at any point in the film. God. My my head's literally in my hands. This movie, like, broke me. I, ha- I hate <laughs> it so much. It's, it's like, I did- even more than Cinema Paradiso. So that was only three hours. This is another two hours and, like less like more stuff happens but also less stuff happens like moment to moment it like moment to moment it's it, it's terrible moment to moment it's it's <laughs> like amateurish uh, either amateurish or workmanlike are the only two modes it has and it even the shootouts think- are shot poorly they don't make sense there's like really weird like spatial relationships and then the one part i kind of liked was when that guy got shot up real good yeah, at the end, like when he gets shot up on the john. Yeah, and like he and the guy that like literally like sticks like the barrel of his gun into his dead body and shoots. Yeah, fucking Indian Michael Shannon just unloads into this yeah. guy. But with but oh my god, everything leading up to that was either boring, which I hate. I hate to use that because that's so like lazy. It, it was either um, I was unable to get invested because I knew this person that I'm following is going to be gone in like five minutes. And they're going to come back in like six hours from now. And I'm going to be expected to remember exactly what happened at this point. I I feel like this is also the kind of movie that's exactly not made for me. I can't even follow the plot in like dread. 
Like when I watch <laughs> Dread, I don't really remember what the plot is. I like Dread a lot. I think it's a great movie, but I don't, there's there's slow mo and there's like two people on it. Like it's like the raid kinda, and that's like all I remember. This this movie has like literally like dozens of people you're supposed to all remember and you're supposed to remember all their relationships with each other and you're supposed to remember all their names and like what they're doing at any one time because they're always being referred to and they're being referenced and there's like double double uh double cross here and double cross there and that's already not good for me it's just the way that i watch movies and the way i absorb stories that's very much not suited to my ability to remember things and then combine that with the fact that it just Nothing of interest happens ever. I I think moment to moment, it's very obvious that these actors had real had a real good time play acting like American gangsters. And I do like the weird, sickly yellow, orange color grading all over the whole thing to make it look edgy. Um, I okay. I like that there's a there's a kid who gets a nickname uh, perpendicular, right? Yeah, and uh, fuck, what's the tangent. other tangent? Tangent. Um. It's it's almost like if I'm feeling really, really, really generous. Oh, there's also a kid whose al- name is literally definite. Definite. Because he has a definite for, like goal in life. I thought I thought I misheard and I thought his name was like Definite. Me too. Or something. <laughs> and they pointed out later but, in the movie, like, what definite? That's weird. But I if I'm feeling if I'm being really, really generous and giving this like a metatextual reading like I'm doing like I did with the elephant man, um, I think this is almost like like an exploded Pynchon-esque version of a gangster film, but I'm not feeling that generous because I didn't have that much fun with it. No, like at least Pynchon like goes weird shit. So even if I have the same problem when I read Pynchon and like, I like Pynchon a lot. So I read him quite a bit. I had the same problem where I can't track what's happening, but there's so much weird shit happening that are like really well-written, like really interesting and thematically complex. And you can follow what you're supposed to follow even if you don't literally know what's happening. Because it's something that Pynchon directs you to with the pros. Yes. We're here, it just and feels I don't think like, here's un- everything, do what you want with it. It's not something that uh, Anurag Kashyap directs your attention to. He's perfectly content just kind of filming the splatter that's on the kitchen sink, so to speak. Yes. So, Seven Samurai? Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's going to be, okay. obviously, Derek, obviously it's fucking Seven Samurai. <laughs> like, oh my god. I hope... I even if you literally okay here's how here's how much I don't like Gangs of Wasper. If you had say, "Hey, I'm gonna use my veto," I would have used every other veto I had to, until it didn't go forward, and then the podcast would have ended. <sighs> oh man! But thank God it's not going forward. My my that personal was... hell is over slightly temporarily. You've you've got several other personal several other personal hells waiting for you up the bracket. Yeah, I gotta watch four hundred blows or whatever. Mm. I mean, you have to watch. Blade Runner 2049. Oh. Again. Why did I do this? Why you have no why one to blame but yourself? Because oh. you're a glutton for punishment, oh, I guess. That's right. that's, you're probably actually... That's, well, there's all these other movies that are good that's that we're going to see. You know, I got to see Tokyo Story. Got to be positive, right? I mean, I think this is the podcast where you turn a corner on something that you've historically shat on. I think this is the podcast where you either turn around on... Uh, on Truffaut, or you turn around on Richard Linklater, or someone else that you don't like. To be fair, I've never seen a Truffaut film. <laughs> I just shit on him because I don't like the French New Wave. Not his fault. You will be unsurprised to know that I quite like Francois Truffaut. Yeah, because you're a white dude. <laughs> Who lo- so that's you, our show. You have a master's in film. Of course you like Francois Truffaut. I mean, yo, there are, like, there are a lot of people that don't, that I studied with, you know? I don't believe you, but that's fine. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, there, there's no Godard films on this list, right? I don't have to deal with that. I think Breathless is on there somewhere. No, it's fuck. No, it's not. I don't believe. Please tell me. You're, no, you're you're uh, you're uh, you're safe. Oh, thank God. I'm actually kind of surprised that there isn't one. It's got. I would have imagined there's. It's because his French New Wave films suck ass. Fuck you, John Luc Godard in the what? That's the 60s, right? Fuck. Late 50s, late 50s early 60s. 60s yeah. You're terrible. Later on, you got weird and you got to be a communist. That's cool. I'm fine with that. But, like, Breathless is a terrible film, and I realize people like it. I realize people like it a lot, and it's very influential, and it blah, 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 blah. It's one of the worst French films I've ever seen in my entire life. It's unbearable. And I hate that. I hate that. Should we end <laughs> I, this podcast? It's, 
Not the end of the podcast, sound, we end this episode. I know you don't like the movie, but I think you're laying it on a bit No, thick. like, uh, can you name a worse... Okay, you probably can't because you, like, you speak French and shit. But, like, I literally yeah. can't think of a, of a worse... I'm gonna, here, I'm going to go into Letterboxd right now and, like, look up French films and see if there's any, like, less than Breathless. Hold on. This is... Have you seen... Have you seen any non? Have you seen any movie with Jean Z- uh, Jean Dujardin in it? That's not the artist. Um, he was in that like surfer movie, whatever, right? Yeah, Brice de Nice. That movie really sucks. Yeah, I've heard that from. You. <laughs> um, so my rating. That's literally that's literally one of the worst movies I've ever seen, straight up. <laughs> and I can't, I can't fucking imagine how bad it would play to a non-French person or a non-French speaker. So okay, here's here. here. I'll give you this. There's there's one film that I have listed on Letterboxd that is a French production in the French language that I think is worse than Breathless. Okay. It's High Tension. I didn't like High Tension. Yeah, it sucks ass. You know, it's 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 marginally worse than Breathless. I don't know, man. I'll take Breathless any day of the week over High Tension. I don't even know if I'd go... Like, if I had to rewatch one, I think High Tension is the worst movie. But I, if I had to rewatch one, at least High Tension is, like, gore and, like, girls kissing. I feel like uh, Breathless is, like, the easier hang, though. I don't think you realize how hard it was for me to get through Breathless. I found Man. it genuinely a miserable experience. All right. Okay. So catch us next week when we watch the 400 Blows or whatever. What are we doing next week? Uh, what are we doing next week? That's a good question. Uh, here is- Oh, we're watching good-ass movies next week. Hell yeah. Except we for got... the Linklater film, but that's fine. Have you seen the Linklater no, film? No, but I don't like Linklater film. Maybe you'll like this one. I, okay. Oh, I'm- I got a little too into my own negativity there. I should say I am excited to watch Before Sunrise because this is the sunrise. The Before movies are what everyone tells me. Hey, these are the Linklater films I think you'll actually like. So hey, maybe that's what happens. I've never seen any of the Before movies. That's and wild. I'm, and I'm a fan. So uh, next week or not next time, as it were, we're going to. Uh, this is a weird slate. Um, a little bit. The two matchups are Your Name. Woo! Your Name is on this list, and Gone Girl. I'm excited to watch okay. your name win the entire bracket. It's got to get through Gone Girl first. Oh, though. it. I, sorry, David Fincher, you're going down. Ooh, I don't know about that. We'll see. We'll see. I have, I've never seen Gone Girl. I have literally no idea if I like it or not. I made the mistake of watching that on Valentine's Day last year. <laughs> Perfect film. Yep. And the other matchup is Apocalypse Now versus Before Sunrise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's 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 that. Uh, we got we got some weird ones. Is it? Uh, anyway. Uh, if you want to uh, at us because you agree, disagree, maybe with something that we've said, or maybe you just want to say hello. I can't imagine uh, anything or- we've said that's disagreeable. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Isabel is on Twitter at uh, Space Jam Fan. I sure am. I myself, I myself am on Twitter at Derek underscore G. The pod is on Twitter at Middlebrow Pod. You can drop us a line at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Give us your recipes, meatloaf, pasta, anything. We'll take them. I'd like it more if they're vegan, though. Oh, also vegan options, please. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's it for this episode. Yeah. So until next time, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek Gade. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night.